Be anxious for nothing. That's the topic I chose for today, and I'll confess I'm a little anxious. I think it's a little normal to be a little bit anxious about something you want to go well. But um, it's an opportunity to share. It's not hard to be anxious as we watch what's going on around us. We deal with health and financial and family relationship issues. We deal with the state of our nation and the world. And we hear the things that are going on. And then there are personal lists that each of us can make that make us anxious. Last fall, the Wednesday morning Bible study group chose to work through Max Lucado's Anxious for Nothing, Finding Calm in a Chaotic World study. So when Pastor Dave asked if I'd be willing to speak to you, that's where my heart fell, to share with you some of what we learned. The biblical reference for this study is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And the word anxiety comes from Latin meaning choke or squeeze. Anxiety is a threat of onslaught. What ifs, uncertainties regarding the list of concerns that we face, our children's needs, our relationships, our jobs, our finance, our health, many other things. Fear is seeing the threat. Well, anxiety is imagining what might happen if. I'm going to be reading a number of things from his, his book. Most of these words that I share with you are not mine. They're his. Here is the first thought um, I want to share with you. It says, one would think Christians would be exempt from worry, but we're not. We have been taught that the Christian life is a life of peace. And when we don't have peace, we assume the problem lies within us. Not only do we feel anxious, but we also feel guilty about our anxiety. And the result is a downward spiral of worry, guilt, worry, guilt. The five verses that Paul wrote have four pieces of advice which lead to one Wonderful promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. That's verse 7. Verse 4 tells us to celebrate God's goodness, rejoicing in the Lord always. Verse 6 tells us to ask God for help. Let your requests be known to God. 
Verse 6 also tells us to leave our concerns with him, with thanksgiving. And verse 8 tells us to meditate on good things. Think about the things that are good and worthy of praise. These verses give us a formula. Celebrate plus ask plus leave plus meditate. It equals calm. How can we celebrate God's goodness? Paul insists that we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Max had a um, tent story. His family was, were campers, and his dad went to the surplus store. It says he loved camping gear as much as he loved camping trips. One day, when I was about nine years old, he returned from a trip to the Army surplus store with a tent that became a part of the Lakato family lore. It was huge. It could hold a dozen cots. It, we could erect the tent around a picnic table and still have room for a dozen cots. We could, um, or let's see, a big tent, of course, requires stable tent poles. This one came with two. Don't confuse these poles with the slender retractable aluminum versions that come with the average size camping tent. No cereba. These poles were made of cast iron and were as thick as a forearm. And that depends on whose forearm you're thinking about, but the shelter wasn't fancy, no zippered doors, no mosquito netting, no camouflage design, but it was sturdy. Let the winds howl, let the summer rains fall, let the hail pound, let the weather change. We weren't going anywhere. On one occasion, we camped at Estes Park, Colorado, along with Dad's eight siblings. The sky suddenly grew dark and stormy. Rain popped the ground and wind bent the pine trees and everyone made a dash for their tents. Within moments, everyone left their tents and scampered to ours. It was, after all, the one with the two cast iron poles. I'm thinking you and I could use a set of these poles. The world has a way of brewing some fierce winds. Who among us hasn't sought protection from the elements of life? And he also says, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's prescription for anxiety begins with a, way, with a call to rejoice. Paul used every tool in the box on this verse, hoping to get our attention. First, he employed a present imperative tense so his readers would hear him say continually, habitually, rejoice. And if the verb tense wasn't enough, he removed the expiration date. Rejoice in the, world, in the Lord always. Emphasis mine, he says. And if perchance the verb tense and always were inadequate, he repeated the command. Again, I will say rejoice. How can a person obey this command? Rejoice always. Is it possible for any person to maintain an uninterrupted spirit of gladness? No. This is not Paul's challenge. We're urged to rejoice in the Lord. This is a verse. This verse is a call, not to a feeling, but to a decision and a deeply rooted confidence that God exists. He is in control and he is good. 
our belief system must be strong, believing in the sovereignty of God. We're not in control. God is in control. God is in control of every deal, detail of the universe. Rather than seeking total control, relinquish it. You can't run the world, but you can entrust it to God. This is the message behind Paul's admonition to rejoice in the Lord. Peace is within reach, not for lack of problems, but because of the presence of the sovereign Lord. Lift up your eyes. Don't get lost in your troubles. Dare to believe that good things will happen. Dare to believe that God was speaking to you when he said, in everything God works for the good of those who love him. From Romans uh, 8.28, the mind cannot at the same time be full of God and full of fear. He will keep in perfect peace all those who trust him, whose thoughts turn off into the Lord. That's from Isaiah. Are you troubled, restless, sleepless? Then rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. I dare you, I double-dog dare you, to expose your worries to an hour of worship. Your concerns will melt like ice on a July sidewalk. Anxiety passes as trust increases. We also must rejoice in the Lord's mercy. Christ went to the cross for our sin, and we sang about that this morning, and our guilt. He took it upon himself. Paul's life story reveals the amazing gift of God's grace. If anyone has ever re had reason to hope, this is Paul's words in, his, uh, in Acts, if anyone ever had reason to hope that he could save himself, it would be I. If others could be saved by what they are, certainly I could. For I went through the Jewish initiation ceremony when I was eight days old, having been born to a pure-blooded Jewish home that was a branch of the old original Benjamin family. So I was a real Jew, if ever there was one. What's more, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to every Jewish law and custom. And sincere? Yes, so much so that I greatly persecuted the church. And I tried to obey every Jewish rule and regulation right down to the very last point. I apologize, that was in Philippians also. Paul had blood on his hands and religious diplomas on his wall. But then came the Damascus Road moment. Jesus appeared. Once Paul saw Jesus, he couldn't see anymore. He couldn't see value in his resume anymore. He couldn't see merit in his merits or worth in his good works anymore. He couldn't see reasons to boast about anything he'd done anymore. And he couldn't see any option except to spend the rest of his life talking less about himself and more about Jesus. He became the great poet of grace. But all these things that I once thought very worthwhile, now I've thrown them all away so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Max Licato also said, a happy saint is one who is at the same time aware of the severity of sin and the immensity of grace. Sin is not diminished, nor is God's ability to forgive it. Rejoice always in his mercy. Rejoice always? How? 
Well, the story of Joseph's plight illustrates it, his brother's betrayal and sale to the Egyptians, his imprisonment twice, but always rejoicing, believing God's purpose would be realized. He even saved his family. There are many trials in our lives which create anxiety. Joseph suffered, viewed the sufferings of his life through the lens of divine providence. So God's sovereignty bids us to fight the onslaught of fret with a sword that's etched with the words, but God. The company's downsizing, but God is still sovereign. The cancer is back, but God still occupies the throne. I was a jerk during those first years of my marriage, but God showed me how to lead a family. I was anxious, troubled soul, but God has been giving me courage. The brothers had every intention to harm Joseph, but God, in his providence, used their intended evil for good. He never robbed the brothers of their free will. He never imposed his nature upon them, but neither did he allow their sin and their sin nature to rule the day. He rerouted evil into good. God uses all things to bring about his purpose. He will not be deterred in his plan to sustain and carry creation to its intended glory. The ultimate proof of providence is the death of Christ on the cross. No deed was more evil. No other day was so dark. Yet God not only knew of the crucifixion, he ordained it. As Peter told the murderers, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him, keep its hold on him. From Acts. Everyone thought the life of Jesus was over, but God, his son, was dead and buried. But God raised him from the dead. God took the crucifixion of Friday and turned it into the celebration of Sunday. Can he not do a reversal for you? So if the story of Jesus teaches us anything, it's this. We have a choice. We can wear our hurt or we can wear our hope. We can outfit ourselves in our misfortune, or we can clothe ourselves in God's providence. We can cave into the pandemonium of life, or we can lean into the perfect plan of God. And we can believe this promise, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans. Paul, in our theme scripture from Philippians 4, says, Let your gentleness be known to men. God is near. That's verse 5. We're not alone. God does not want us to be fearful or afraid. God repeatedly pledges his proverbial presence to his people. To Abram, God said, Do not be afraid. I'm your shield, your, ex your exceedingly great reward. To Hagar, 
The angel announced, do not be afraid. God has heard. When Isaac was expelled from his land by the Philistines and forced to move from place to place, God appeared to him and reminded him, do not be afraid, for I am with you. After Moses' death, God told Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God was with David in spite of his adultery, with Jacob in spite of his conniving, with Elijah in spite of his lack of faith. And then, in ultimate declaration of communion, God called himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. He became flesh. He became sin. He defeated the grave. He is still with us in the form of his spirit. He comforts comforts and teaches and convicts. Do not assume God is watching from a distance. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? We can calmly take our concerns to God because he's as near as our next breath. Okay, I need to find where I am. When the disciples were asked to feed the thousands of people gathered to listen to Jesus, they did they pause long enough to think about who Jesus was? Well, hmm, Jesus healed the sick people. He raised the dead girl. He calmed the angry waves. I wonder, might he have a solution that we haven't seen? After all, he's standing right here. Let's ask him. Did it occur to anyone to ask Jesus for help? The stunning answer is nope. They acted as if Jesus, Jesus weren't even present. Rather than count on Christ, they had the audacity to tell the creator of the world that nothing could be done because there wasn't enough money. When we face a situation which creates anxiety, a problem that may be difficult to solve, and not enough wisdom, energy, patience, or time, maybe we should start with Jesus. He has wealth, resources, strength. Let's open our hearts in faith to his solution and ask for help. Take your problems to Christ and tell him, you said you would help me, would you? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, put the Lord in remembrance of his promises. Keep not silence. God told Isaiah, put me in remembrance. Let's, let us contend together. God invites you, yes, commands you to remind him of his promises. Populate your prayers with, you said. You said you'd walk me through the waters. Isaiah 43, 2. You said you'd lead me through the valley. Psalm 23, 4. You said you would never leave or forsake me. Hebrews 13, 5. Find a promise that fits your problem and build your prayer around it. These prayers of faith touch the heart of God and activate the angels of heaven. Miracles are set into motion. Your answers may come, not overnight necessarily, but it will come. And you will overcome. 
Prayer is essential in this ongoing war warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. The path to peace is paved with prayer. Less consternation, more supplication, fewer anxious thoughts, more prayer-filled thoughts. As you pray, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind, and in the end, what could be better? Paul also tells us to make our requests known to God with thanksgiving that we should have an attitude of gratitude. Well, gratitude is a mindful awareness of the benefits of life. It's the greatest of virtues. Studies have linked the emotion with a variety of positive effects. Grateful people tend to be more empathetic and forgiving of others. People who keep a gratitude journal are more likely to have a positive outlook on life Grateful individuals demonstrate less envy, materialism, self-centeredness. Gratitude improves self-esteem and enhances relationships, quality of sleep, and longevity. If it came in pill form, grat gratitude would be deemed the miracle cure. It's no wonder then that God's anxiety therapy includes a large, delightful dollop of gratitude. Gratitude leads us off the riverbank of if-onlys and escorts into the fertile valley of already. The anxious heart says, Lord, if only I had this, that, or the other, I'd be okay. The grateful heart says, oh, look, you've already given me this, that, and the other. Thank you, God. Let's take note of our blessings and see what happens. Anxiety grabs his bags and slips out the back door. Worry refuses to share the heart with gratitude. One heartfelt thank you will suck the oxygen out of worry's world. So say it often. Focus more on what you do have and less on what you don't. Death, failure, betrayal, sickness, disappointment, they can't take our joy because they cannot take our Jesus. What we have in Christ is greater than anything we don't have in life. We have God who is crazy about us and the forces of heaven to monitor and protect us. We have the living presence of Jesus within us. In Christ, we have everything. He can give us a happiness that can never be taken, a grace that will never expire, and a wisdom that will ever increase. He's a fountain of living hope that will never be exhausted. So let us anchor our hearts to the character of God. Our boats will rock. Our moods will come and go. Situations will fluctuate, but we will be left adrift on an ocean of despair. Will we be left adrift on an ocean of despair? No. We have found a contentment that endures the storm. No more if only. It's the Petri dish in which anxiety thrives. Replace our if only with already. Look what we already have. Let's treat each anxious thought with a grateful one and prepare ourselves with joy uh, each day. So where does that peace come from? As we rejoice in the Lord and pursue a gentle spirit, as we pray about everything and cling to gratitude, 
God does his part, bestowing upon us the peace of God. This peace transcends all logic, scheming, and efforts to explain it. It's not a human achievement, but a gift from God above. This kind of peace is not a human achievement. Peace, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus promises you this vintage of peace, the peace that calmed his heart when he was falsely accused, the peace that steadied his voice when he spoke to Pilate. The peace that kept his thoughts clear and hearts pure as he hung on the cross. This was his peace. This can be your peace. This peace guards our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God takes responsibility for the hearts and minds of those who believe in him. And as we celebrate him and pray to him, he constructs a fortress around our hearts and minds, protecting us from the attacks of the devil. Okay. Sorry that I have to keep moving, but I, I figured his words are better than mine. <laughs> God never promised a life with no storms, but he has promised to be there when we face them. Consider the compelling testimony of Jehoshaphat. He ascended the throne at the age of 35 and reigned for 25 years. According to the book of Second Chronicles, the Moabites formed a great and powerful confederacy with the surrounding nations and marched against Jehoshaphat. It was a military version of a perfect storm, and the Jews could handle one army, but when one army allies with another and those two combine with a third, more than the king could handle. Jehoshaphat's response deserves a spot in the anxiety treatment textbook. He... Quote, set himself to seek the Lord. He, quote, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. He cried out to God in prayer. He confessed, we have no power, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. God responded with this message. Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Jehoshaphat so totally believed in God, so totally believed in God, that he made the remarkable decision of marching into battle with singers in the front. I'm confident the people who signed up for the choir never imagined they would lead the army. But Jehoshaphat knew the real battle was a spiritual one, so he led with worship and worshipers. By the time they reached the battlefield, the battle was over. The enemies had turned on each other, and the Hebrews never had to raise a sword. So let's listen. Let learn a lesson from the king. Lead with worship. Go first to your father in prayer and praise. Confess to him your fears. Gather with his people. Set your face toward God. Fast. Cry out for help. Admit your weakness. And then once God moves, you move too. Expect to see the God of ages fight for you. He is near, as near as your next breath. In our scripture, Philippians 4.8, tell, Paul tells us 
to meditate on good things. Here's another story that shares a really important message. A 13-year-old daughter had um, endured more than 55 surgeries and medical procedures and approximately 1,000 days in the hospital. Her mom wrote, this past week's new landmine was the phrase possible hemorrhagic stroke, a phrase I heard dozens of times used by numerous physicians over and over. That phrase filled my mind and consumed my thoughts. It was emotionally crippling. They had been doing this study with Max Lakato on anxious for nothing. So I presented my request to the Lord as I had so many times before, but this time, this time, she writes, I needed more. And so using Philippians 4, 8, and 9 as a guide, I found my answer. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. What was true in my life at this particular moment? The blessing of all family members eating dinner together. Whatever is noble. The blessing of enjoying each other's presence outside a hospital room. Whatever is right. The blessing of experiencing my two sons' daily lives. Whatever is pure. The blessing of all three children laughing and playing with each other. Whatever is lovely. The blessing of watching Rebecca sleep peacefully in her bed at night. Whatever is admirable. The blessing of an honorable team working tirelessly on Rebecca's care. If anything is excellent. The blessing of watching a miracle unfold. Or praiseworthy. The blessing of worshiping a Lord who is worthy to be praised. Think about such things. I did. As I meditated on these things, I stopped the dreaded phrase hemorrhagic stroke from sucking any joy out of my life. Its power to produce anxiety was now rendered impotent. And when I dwelt on the bountiful blessings in my life happening at that very moment, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, did guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. A true, unexpected miracle. Thank you, Lord. We can practice thought management by many things in life. Me uh, <coughs> excuse me. We can practice thought management. Many things in life give us no choice. Our birth date, birthplace, parents, siblings, the amount of salt in the ocean. We can choose what we think about. Proverbs 23, 4.23 says, Be careful how or what you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. Happiness will come from sowing seeds of happiness, counting our blessings, memorizing Bible verses, praying, singing hymns and praise songs, spending time with encouraging people. Misery assumes the worst and beats us up. We rehearse the regrets and or complain to complainers. Our thoughts have consequences. But healing from anxiety requires healthy thinking. To drive away negative thoughts, we need to remember to find and claim biblical promises, giving the enemy no way into our thoughts. In Ephesians 6:14, it tells us to fasten the belt of truth around our waist. 
there's a story about Farmer Jones, but I think our time is, is waning here. So it's, it's basically a, the story about the, uh, Jesus and the vineyard. Wouldn't it be our best interest to cling to Christ and abide in him because he is true and honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and worthy of praise? He invited us to cling to him in his message about the vineyard. I am the vine, you are the branches. His allegory is simple. God is like a vine keeper. He lives and loves to coax the best out of his vines. He pampers, prunes, blesses, cuts. His aim is singular. What can I do to prompt produce? God is a capable orchardist who carefully superintends the vineyard. The Father tends. Jesus nourishes. We receive. The grapes appear. Pastors by stunned by stunned at the overflowing baskets of love, grace, and peace. Can't help but ask, who runs this vineyard? And God is honored for this reason. Fruit bearing matters to God, and it uh, matters to us. So, let us abide with Christ. He has invited us to live with Him, to be at home with Him. And there are many passages which ask. He, in which he says, abide with me. So let us find calm as we celebrate God's goodness, rejoicing in the Lord always. Ask God for help, letting our requests be made known to God. Leave our concerns with, with God, guarding our hearts and minds through Christ. Meditate on good things. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things.